yoga is not really something that builds up like your biceps and stuff right yoga you focus on like really this part of your uh, body the indian answer though was to approach this complex system from the inside because they always i assume thought that it was easier understood from the interior perspective than being uh, experienced as an outsider so that's why i think sadguru maybe named his uh, uh, kind of his program inner engineering because really it is what he's doing he's internally kind of engineering these complicated neural circuits if this these techniques can be used for recovering from diseases like stroke theoretically you should also be able to use them for enhancing normal people which i think is what they were devised for in the first place i think these practices were all aimed at kind of improving who were already healthy into like something better thank you guys uh, thank you for all coming here uh, so this is my talk uh, interpreting tantra as subjective neuroscience um, that's my name and i'm a medical doctor i did my medical school from here uh, aims in new delhi and uh, currently a neurocritical care uh, fellow which is like a super specialization within neurology uh, at harvard in boston so little bit about my background i'm from chennai uh, i spent a few years of my life growing up in qatar and uh, i did my medical school from aims like i said i went to the us i did a couple of years of uh, neurology research uh, at northwestern in chicago and then i did my neurology residency at the university of alabama and now i'm currently doing super specialization at harvard so uh, apart from this i also you know i had actually represented the country at the international biology olympiad in beijing uh, i don't put it up here to kind of tout my own horn it was primarily because i want to make it very clear that i have really been marinated and germinated in the western scientific tradition and that is really the the viewpoint that i take in approaching this subject um you know like how kids when their mom and dad tell them one thing and the teacher tells them another thing usually they listen to what the teacher says so in a similar way i think for me the western scientific biology tradition is my teacher so like my viewpoint is still really very based on that so uh this talk is essentially going to be like a third person looking into tantra and uh, kundalini yoga and all that so i don't consider myself too much of an insider to these traditions even though i've been doing sadhana for like 6 months or so but i still kind of see myself as a scientist trying to explore these from a uh, western derived scientific lens um so this picture i essentially put up there because i want to kind of use it as a metaphor for each new generation of human beings when they come in they basically look out at everything that's out there and the parents the culture created by all the generations that came before them basically explain how to approach what they see now the standard approach especially in the west like through the telescope they see all these stars planets and stuff and they focus on what is out there but i think what is unique about the indian tradition i believe uh, the other speaker later in the evening today is also going to touch upon this is that indians thought that this is not the most important or the first or the primary thing that we see when we look out through the telescope that is our you know our human body what we actually see is the inside of the telescope right like that is the first thing the instrument itself the lenses the the barrel in which it is contained and that really filters the signal coming from outside and then we only perceive what the instrument has filtered and sent to us so essentially as human beings we are really conditioned by this body brain the eyes and stuff that we are given so what we perceive of the external environment is really a refraction or a reflection through everything that separates the observer in the back from what's out there and so about this talk just a you know a like a brief summary it's going to be a very birds eye overview of something which i consider a very important stream of indian thought uh, i'm not going to give you like an exhaustive evidence list of all these various studies and stuff i was looking at uh, one of the facebook posts about the talk and i think there was a discussion there like are bhai isme kya hoga kuch idea hai and then somebody was like most likely fmri studies ke bare mein kuch discussion hoga and then like ha ha shayad so that's not going to be this i'll have a little bit of fmri stuff but i mean i'm really not really interested in treating this as a talk to neurologists which i have given but i don't think you guys would be interested um so most of this is going to be a lot of hypotheses i'm going to discuss a mode of most of my theorizing and like thought process and just kind of get your feedback on them a uh, lot of circumstantial evidence and see you know what you you guys think as well 
I'm, uh, I think Disha asked me to define Tantra. I'm really not going to get into that because it's kind of a vague thing. Honestly, everything in Indian thought is similar in many ways. I think each stream really just emphasizes a few things and disemphasizes a few other things. So it's really hard to say that yeah, 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 isme hai or wo, 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 usme hai. Everything has everything. This is just like a few things. It's kind of like when you see it, you'll know it, but it's very hard to put into words what precisely Tantra is. But it's similar to the concepts of Kundalini Yoga, a lot of Mantra, uh, Shastra and all that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times Tantra is associated with sex, so this is nothing about sex. This is purely a science-based, very uh, rational talk. The goal, as I said, is to trigger conversation among people who seem to have similar interests and get some constructive criticism. Because again, like this is not something I get to discuss with my friends and colleagues very often because like very few people have these interests. So like the fact that there's 20 people here, 30 people here who are actually very interested in this topic uh, is a great resource for me to get my own thinking correct. Um, all right. So let's look at this slide. Okay. So this is a standard slide that a lot of people would see when they try to understand the essentials of Indian metaphysics. This is mostly Samkhya derived, but like a lot of Indian metaphysical systems are derived from Samkhya. So like Purusha, Prakriti and you know, Mahadbuddhi and then like elements come out, cognitive senses. Um, I think the, uh, the common tendency is to think of this as some sort of physics, like people, like I've read stuff where they compare the Higgs boson to one of these things, they compare like membrane theory or string theory to some part of this, which I think is like a, a, a strange way to approach this, because I think most of these philosophical concepts were based around this kind of rule that uh, the Indians adopted. And Yatha Brahmande Tatha Pende, I think their entire thought process about the world and themselves was based around this kind of uh, axiom, like whatever was outside was also within. And I don't know like if this axiom is true, like, you know, like scientifically it doesn't make sense, but like that was kind of their thinking. So maybe it is true. I'm, I'm open to a discussion about it. So I think this slide actually conveys the message of the previous uh, uh, Samkhya slide in a better, more easy to understand way, at least in the way that I understand it. I feel like these guys were not really making theories about physics. They weren't saying like, first this particle was there, then this particle came, then this came, that came. They were really describing their own cognitive processes. Like they found like at the back of the, all the cognitive processing was this pure consciousness. And then from there in gradual stages, other senses, other experiences came out. So they basically were describing this evolution from the primordial uh, kind of content free consciousness into everything that was in the world. And then like the goal of yoga was to go backwards and ascend back towards that primordial consciousness. Okay. So now the problem when you're doing like such a sort of analysis of the cognitive system is that there's just so much stuff going on. Like there's sound, light, like there's so many people moving around you. It's very difficult for you to really get a grasp of how to handle a complex system like this because it's always changing and there are just so many variables. So the question is like everybody, I assume every, you know, every human being with an interest in this stuff has to deal with it. How do you study and control a system with so many variables? So Western answer was always to look harder at what was out there. So they saw like these planets out there and comets out there and they were like, let's study it in more and more detail and try to block out whatever is being contributed by this portion of our cognitive apparatus. And then we'll have this objective viewpoint of what really the object out there is. Where, so that's kind of where all the stuff that I deal with as a neurologist comes from. This is like, you know, functional MRI, like that guy was commenting on Facebook. This is an EEG, it's brain, brain wave activities. Uh, this is a neurosurgery, which is like the apex of this approach to the uh, nervous system. Really just, you treat it as a piece of meat and then you do surgeries upon it and then you uh, treat it just like any other object, right? The Indian answer though, was to approach this complex system from the inside because they always, I assume, thought that it was easier understood from the interior perspective than being uh, experienced as an outsider. So that's why I think Sadhguru maybe named his uh, uh, kind of his program Inner Engineering because really it is what he's doing. He's internally kind of engineering these complicated neural circuits. So this is another metaphorical example. So basically this is the Western system. They're basically looking at a brain from a third person. Indian system, you don't look with your eyes. You close your eyes, you look with your third eye essentially. Look inwards and that really is uh, kind of the gist of what 
this talk is about because I'm saying that what the Western approach found in kind of science terms can in some ways be correlated what the Indian approach finds from the inner terms. Obviously, they're not going to be the same thing because like, you know, you are not going to be exposed to every element of your uh, mechanism when you see it from the inside. At the same time, when you look at it from the outside, you are missing out a lot of things that are coming from the inside, right? Again, similar metaphor, like this is a volcano. So you Western approach, you look at it from the outside, look at this mountain and all this stuff, smoke coming out. Indian approach, you look right there, you look out from the eye of the volcano and, the, and that's the view that you uh, get. There is no saying that one is superior to the other. I think they're both very important approaches. Even in India, there have been like uh, third person objective approaches as well. And in the West, there have been some approaches from the first person as well. It's just like the broad kind of outline. Okay, the reason I think this is timely, this talk in particular, is that uh, a few weeks ago I actually read this article on this science uh, journal called Aeon. So it was written by th uh, three people, two Western physicists and uh, one Western philosopher. And they said that there is this blind spot in the standard Western approach to science, which is that we forget the place of the first person human experience. So the science, as we say it stands, does not really address that issue at all. For example, like the classical example that uh, Western scientific and philosophical traditions give is this. This is a rose. If somebody had color blindness for red color, so they couldn't see the red color, how would you describe a rose to them? You can describe the shape, you can describe the smell, but how would you convey to them what redness is? It is essentially impossible. If you don't have the ability to appreciate redness, no amount of text or talk can really convince you what redness is because it is just something which is only experienceable, it cannot be communicated. And they call this qualia, it's essentially uh, non-communicable uh, experiential states. Okay? And I think a lot of all these things they describe in Tantra, uh, Kundalini Yoga and all are descriptions of the qualia universe. Um, so let's uh, discuss a few of these insights that uh, Western and Indian neuroscientists have obtained, right? So the first one, of course, for all neurologists, neuroscientists is an analysis of consciousness. So I'm a neurocritical care fellow. So it's essentially like a coma doctor because the vast majority of our patients are in ICU and they're comatose. Coma is a disorder of consciousness. So you lose consciousness. So we need an easy way to study consciousness, right? So there's this uh, encyclopedia that actually defined consciousness or at least recommended that we analyze consciousness in this way. And this is actually the standard neurological approach to analyzing consciousness. A multifaceted concept that has two dimensions, arousal or wakefulness. So that's like you're awake, asleep. So that's the dimension that goes up and down in this axis, arousal. And awareness, which is like the content of consciousness. So when you're awake, there are many things you can be aware of. You can be aware of that water bottle. You can be aware of a certain taste, a certain smell. So they say like consciousness, you can really assess along these two axes. So this was done by a very famous neurologist named Stephen Lawrence it's, uh, in the Encyclopedia of Neuroscience. So based on this understanding, this is a very standard approach that neurologists use to understanding consciousness. So the x-axis is wakefulness or arousal, y-axis is awareness or the content of consciousness. So as you can see, bottom left where there's no arousal, no awareness is coma uh, or death, you know. And top right is like when you're both aware and awake and that's conscious wakefulness. In some cases, like uh, in sometimes in seizures, uh, sometimes in some damage to your brain, you can be left with just arousal or just awareness, but those are specialized conditions. Um, in a seizure, sometimes like a person will blank out, so he's aroused, but he's no longer aware of what's around him. Um, so it's a very fascinating way of analyzing and it's proven to be very effective. Now the neuroscience, very advanced neuroscience literature has kind of gone beyond this two axis model to kind of have a more fine grained view but most neurologists still really swear by this. Uh, interesting thing for me as an Indian is that uh, somebody in India had come up with something very similar. This is uh, Acharya Abhinav Gupta. Like if any of you have an experience of Kashmir Saivism, he's like very famous, of course. Lived about a thousand years ago. Uh, he just wrote some really fantastic stuff, which I think if understood through a neurological lens, is just really uh, mind blowing. So he described the ultimate reality, uh, which of course was pure consciousness. Uh, he says one uh, component of that ultimate reality was Prakash and that was the light of consciousness. It was unchanging, indivisible, changeless and he says it's like a smooth mirror. And he says the other component is Vimarsha which is basically a reflection and he says through the Vimarsha you become aware of what is out there. And the Vimarsha could be of various objects, it could be of emotions. So 
And I feel like this is very, very strikingly similar to this concept of arousal and awareness because they just seem to be describing it from two different perspectives. And it could be a coincidence that somebody came up with this thousand years ago and now modern neurologists use the same thing. But it is more likely that they are both describing a same phenomenon just happened to happen at two different time points. And the second aspect of consciousness, which I will describe further in this, is within Vimarsha, how Vimarsha was generated. So the standard approach in Western thought, right, is always to say that the mind is independent of the body. This is Rene Descartes. So he came up with this uh, cogito ergo sum. So I think, therefore I am. So their dualism was always anything mental is one and anything physical is the other. The body is different. So they had this very clear cut line separating these two spheres. Uh, but over the last 40, 50 years, there has been this new approach coming up in the West in neuroscience literature of embodied cognition. So where they start to wonder if the body is not really that separate from your mental processes. So they start wondering if there's components of the body that contribute to mental processing. And one very famous one was this thing called the somatic markers hypothesis. So basically it says that emotionally charged events, when you experience them, they produce some body changes. These body changes, they are remembered in some structures in the nervous system. And then these structures in the nervous system, which maintain the traces of those events, they draw upon these when in future you have to make some decisions or do some behavior. And I actually got to work with the writer of this book who came up with this hypothesis, Antonio Damasio. Uh, I spent a few months in his lab. It's a huge lab. It's wonderful. Uh, so he basically titled his book Descartes' Error. So he thought that uh, this concept of the mind being independent of the body was false. So his very uh, kind of simple and uh, elegant way of proving that uh, the mind and body are not independent was this thing called the Iowa gambling task. So this was just like a computer game. So where you had these four decks of cards, like playing cards, and the person had to like click at random, like you got like, I don't know, 20, 30 tries. Each deck had cards which were both positive or negative. So some cards would give you money, some cards would take away money from you. So, and each deck had different proportions of the gain and uh, debit cards. So like some decks, if you kept clicking, you would probably make more money. Some decks, if you kept clicking, you would probably lose more money. So the fascinating thing here was that in normal people, when your cursor hovered over, like deck, say deck C was the bad deck, your skin would start sweating and show, start showing evidence of stress. The fascinating thing though was like, this was long before the person himself was able to say that the C deck is the bad deck. So clearly this proves that the body was showing changes. There are parts of the brain and body which knew that this was the bad deck before the person's conscious mental processes could say that this was the bad deck. So this was wonderful and uh, this led to a lot of debate and discussion and it's uh, spawned a very interesting new field. And as a result of uh, research that has come out of that, um, there's been a resurgence of interest in this concept called interoception, which is like the internal sense of the body, how the body's various internal uh, states are communicated to the brain. Uh, this is published in a very prestigious journal. Uh, it says it's interoception is an afferent neural system that represents all aspects of the physiological condition of the body. It might provide a foundation for subjective feelings, emotion, self-awareness. And I think from our perspective, again, what's fascinating is that somebody in 2016 from the, one of the New York uh, hospitals, I believe, published this. The subtle body is an interoceptive map of central nervous system function and meditative mind-body integration. A subtle body, basically, they said it had something to do with how the body was being mapped in the sensory nervous system. So this is kind of how the brain's sensory cortex looks. So this is called the primary sensory cortex. So these body parts that are made over here is basically in that part of the brain, this part of the body's sensory input is being mapped. And this is only one part of the brain where the sensations are mapped, but this is the most prominent part. So as you can see, there is like very disproportionate mapping, right? Like the hand is so big, the tongue and face are so big, the trunk, leg, foot, everything is very small. This is because obviously you have much more fine sensation in your fingertips and your face than you do in the back of your, uh, back of your, uh, you know, your, your hand, for instance, or actually in your back. So this is called the sensory homunculus. It is a uh, imagination of what the body would look like if each body part was resized according to the amount of space devoted to it in the sensory cortex. So as you can see, the hands are very big because you sense it very well. The tongue is very big. Um, 
and the other parts of the body are very small because you don't really spend that much brain power processing sensation from there. So think about this. So the previous paper I said subtle body could be an interoceptive map. So we know that in all our traditions there is this concept of the sukshma sharir. So is the sukshma sharir really a representation of how the brain is viewing the body? And this is not, I'm not saying this is equal to that figure because this figure is limited to external sensation. As you can see, like, you know, you don't have anything for like heart, intestine, you know, those sensations also are transmitted to the brain, but this is a one, like only one sensory modality. So the sukshma sharir, I would say is probably a more complex, um, more data rich representation of the body. But in principle, I think they are on the right track. And I think the sukshma sharir really is how the brain really views the body. So, and again, the, you know, reading my favorite uh, uh, Indian writer, Abhinav Gupta, there's some very suggestive evidence that this line of reasoning is probably accurate. So, Abhinav Gupta in his works, he ranked all the various bodily senses in a hierarchy. And of course, for him, like the hierarchy means the best is to be like closest to pure consciousness, right? So, he says the inner touch is the most subtle of all the senses. And in India, like if it's more subtle, it's very good. Like if it's gross, thul, like it's okay, but like, you know, like you want to be very special, it needs to be very subtle. So he says the inner touch is the most subtle of all the senses. And he says it's the closest to pure consciousness, which is what is like, you know, his uh, kind of goal of his, all his practice was to go to pure consciousness. And this is a map of something called the brain stem, which is kind of in the back of the brain. It is the most important part of the brain, kind of called the lizard brain. It's very old. And that's where all the structures which support consciousness live. So what's interesting here is that I actually wrote a review paper on the brain stem in like how it works and emotions. What's interesting here is that the interoceptive system, which is like the sensations from the internal organs and heart and all that, they actually project very closely to the structures in the brain stem, which support consciousness and arousal. And this is not true for other senses like vision or hearing. They are all travel through that area, but they don't project as much to those consciousness supporting structures, which is very fascinating. Did Abhinav Gupta at that time, through his internal perception, kind of work out this close relationship between these two uh, kind of structures. It could be. And of course, Abhinav Gupta, as you know, is not just a philosopher. He's also a very big aesthetics guy. He's like written a lot of stuff on art, art appreciation. Um, and his uh, big idea, of course, that we still talk about is uh, rasa, which is uh, basically he, uh, he termed it like the way you appreciate an artistic experience. And this was an article from several years ago, which is like very uh, prominent in the humanities literature, the aesthetic and the religious Rasaswada and Brahmaswada and Kashmir Shaivism. Um, so for Abhinav Gutta, the rasa was the taste of an experience. He specifically used this term rasa. And he says it was at the border between the concept, conceptual world and the concept free ultimate reality or pure consciousness. That was the border rasa. That's why it was so important to him. And he says, if you went to a show or an art uh, exhibition, Unless that experience of rasa was felt, like you got the taste of that art, it wasn't really like, uh, you hadn't really like experienced it. It wasn't enough if you just went there and kind of went through the motions. Something had to happen which you felt like you were tasting it. And again, another very fascinating aspect in terms of the inner touch and taste is that there is this area in the back of the brain called uh, uh, the nucleus of the tractus solitarius or the NTS, where sensory inputs are integrated the two major sensory inputs are from the body and taste. So it's very strange, like these sensory inputs of all the various ones could be vision, could be hearing, could be smell. None of those are involved, but taste and the bodily inputs, the inner touch and taste, so rasa and the inner touch are kind of concentrated here. And it's not just here. From this point onwards, everywhere the body maps the uh, internal sensations, it also maps taste. So there's this place called the insula, which is higher up in the body. Uh, higher up in the brain, where again, uh, taste and internal body sensations are clubbed together and they have a joint representation. So there was this paper from 2015, a common gustatory and interoceptive representation in the human midinsula. So it's well known. So I think it's just again, odd coincidence. There's no way to prove with certainty, but I think it's an interesting thought. And if it's possible that somebody like Abhinav Gupta, who had like very fine ways of analyzing his own conscious thought process, maybe he was able to tell that there was some sort of close relationship between taste, internal sensation and consciousness. Um, other uh, coincidences, and of course, there's this thing called the Nadi system, which this I think is something that most of you guys may already be aware of. 
So there are two nadis, right? Like Idha nadi and Pingala nadi. At least there's many others, Sushumna and all that. But for our purposes, these two were well described. They run from like the base of your spine all the way to uh, middle of your head. And the Idha nadi is the cooling, relaxing one. Pingala is the activating and warming one. What is strange to me as a neurologist is that this is very strangely similar to these two components of what is called the autonomic nervous system, which also run in this kind of pathway from the uh, brain to the bottom of the spine. And they have this thing called the parasympathetic, which is cooling and relaxing, and the sympathetic, which is supposed to be warming and activating. So the parasympathetic is mostly meant for you to relax and eat and digest your food. Sympathetic is supposed to be for like, you know, if you see a predator, you want to run away, you want to escape from it. Um, and of course, then after the nadis, you go on to the chakra system, which I'm not really getting into because I have some interesting ideas of how they might correlate to neurological processes, but I've not like really well developed them yet. So I don't want to uh, speak something without at least some circumstantial evidence in its favor. Um, coming back to the nadis, the nadis were supposed to be controlled through breathing, right? So that if you inhale through the left nostril, you're supposed to activate your idanadi and like cool down, you inhale through your right nostril, you're supposed to activate the pingala nadi and you're supposed to like activate and warm yourself and stuff. So there's some kind of beginning evidence in scientific literature that there is actually this pattern that if you have certain alternating nostril breathing, you can have changes in your autonomic nervous system. Um, right now, most of these are not published in like very high grade journals. It's not like a huge field of research. But I think it's interesting that people are starting to find some evidence that this is true. There was this article, for instance, assessment of the effects of pranayama on parasympathetic nervous system. There was here this hemisphere specific EEG related to alternate nostril breathing. And uh, these are all like, uh, you know, reasonably respected foreign journals. They're not, uh, you know, specifically only like people who do yoga will publish in them. Um, then again, there's this paper, which I actually saw uh, a few months ago, very fascinating, which says breathing is a fundamental rhythm of brain function. And this paper actually was published uh, purely from non-Indian countries. And I don't think uh, any people of Indian origin in that uh, author list either. And they basically said that somehow there's some correlation between uh, breathing in and out and like some rhythms they're able to detect in the brain's cortex, like electrical rhythms, the so functioning. So, I think what was most fascinating is that I uh, happened to find this paragraph in this English translation of Yoga Vasishta. Uh, relationship between prana and manas, uh, which are very close in the body, is like the driver and his chariot. When the prana acts, the manas reacts. So when you want high achievement of high mind control, you want to really control and master prana. I think it's fascinating that people had come up with some similar ideas so long ago, but I don't think the bridge has been made between these two uh, uh, approaches because in this paper, I think there's maybe like one throwaway line says like there's some evidence from uh, Indian tradition of yoga that breathing may be related to mental function, but they don't really like extensively cite any of these works, which I think is uh, sad because if this is true, that means these guys actually did figure out this very crucial and important relationship. And breathing, of course, was not the only technology that uh, the tantric and uh, yoga practitioners had to manipulate the nervous system. They had this uh, mantra, which was, of course, sound repetition, yantra, which was uh, visualizing geometrical patterns, uh, Sri Chakra, and uh, mudra and asana, of course, like various uh, postures and gestures. And uh, most importantly, Hatha Yoga was also a very important tool for this. We, I think these days we are uh, exposed to a lot more of questions like this, especially if you live, like me, live in the West. Is yoga a sport? Uh, yoga is often classed with athletics. People say that, I go gym, why do yoga? So, and uh, in, in the US, especially, I think it's like all the girls do yoga, all the guys go like weightlifting. So it's considered like equivalent activities or they do Pilates. So but the, what, the odd thing here is that yoga is not really something that builds up like your biceps and stuff, right? Yoga, you focus on like really this part of your uh, body. Like you're not focusing on like all these other things as much. You want to like really hit what you call the core, the trunk. Like look at these pictures and tell me like if you can figure out which of these Pairs is the boss. There's one gorillas, just like two cartoon characters, uh, two monkeys, and just two stick figures. So really in the stick figure picture, there's so little collateral information that you're being provided. It's really just the shape and the way the person is holding his body. And you're able to tell immediately to any, any and all of us, probably in any civilization, that there's something about the way the person stands and holds his trunk and his head that gives you an insight into the mental state. So that's why I was very fascinated when I started reading this article in this magazine called The Atlantic, why one neuroscientist started blasting his core. So there was basically a discussion of an article that had been published in a very prestigious science journal, 
uh, called PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So they use this technique called transneuronal rabies virus transport. So basically the rabies virus, it travels from one neuron to another neuron, so nerve cell to nerve cell. So if you put it in like one neuron here, you can trace where that neuron projects because then it's obviously it's being transmitted one way to the other, right? So what they found very fascinatingly was that the adrenal medulla, which is kind of over here, which produces like adrenaline, which is like, you know, the sympathetic activity, stress, things like that. Uh, there was top-down control from the brain on the medulla and that control was coming purely from its trunk representation. So that part of the brain which controls movements of the trunk was also the part of the brain that strongly controlled the activity of the adrenal medulla, which I think is a very interesting preliminary evidence that there's something about this part of the body uh, that really correlates with your stress level and your mental state. And uh, as you guys probably all know, like with all these technologies, hatha yoga, pranayama, mantra, mudra, they always recommended that we do very sustained practice, like they called it sadhana, and you had to do it for a very long time. So my premise is that uh, these work because of neuroplasticity, like sustained exposure can change the neural wiring. And so I don't think it's magic or luck or anything like that. So I think that's why these things are amenable to a scientific understanding, because if this is the claim that you do certain thing over and over and over, and you will see a certain effect, then it is clearly, obviously, some rational thing that is being done. It may not be possible for current scientific tools to pick up what is happening, like because we have a very coarse view of the nervous system. Right now, it's like you have like a magnifying glass and you're trying to look at like Milky Way. So you can see something, but you can't really see much. Um, so then the question comes, has there been any proof that they're effective? And here I'll try to like, you know, not bore you guys too much. Uh, there's first some evidence that the, there's effect on the brain's electrical activity. There was this one British study which uh, showed that the EEG shows increased activity in the gamma wave range when uh, people uh, from different meditative traditions are compared to normal controls. So, you know, interesting that even with the course tools we have, we are able to find out. Uh, and this was only true for advanced practitioners though, not for beginners. And then brain structure also changes. So the previous one was electrical activity and then structure. So there was this article recently in Scientific American, a neuroscientist explores the Sanskrit effect. So a bunch of guys had kind of uh, scanned brains of people doing Vedic chanting and they found that there were some changes in cognitive functioning associated structures. It's interesting at the same time, I don't know how revolutionary it would be because think about it, any brain activity that you do will change your brain. Uh, that's how the brain works. But what is I think fascinating here is that this activity in particular is able to produce changes which are detectable by coarse tools like MRI. That is an interesting aspect for sure. Uh, another MRI study uh, compared uh, Hatha Yoga versus controls. They looked at whole brain gray matter and usually there is a significant decline in age. After you're about 30 years old, your brain gray matter starts declining. It's just natural aging. But they did not see the same kind of decline in the yoga group. So this is just the kind of the money figure from that paper. Um, and they also found that more the duration that the person had practiced yoga, there was an increase in the cortical gray matter. So again, providing evidence for this idea that sustained sadhana is what is essential. You can't just do it like one day, two days and see, expect to see too much uh, benefit. Um, then there's another 2014 study from Massachusetts General, like that's where I work, but uh, I wasn't involved in this paper. Uh, so they found that fluid intelligence declined slower in aging yoga and meditation practitioners. So again, structural changes, IQ changes, electrical activity changes, all of that, there is some evidence that these um, mind-based practices are affecting them. And of course, there's also evidence that the brain's response to stress itself changes. Uh, there was this study which compared hot yoga versus stretching. Yoga group had better executive function. Executive function is like making quick decisions on the fly. If you have many things you want to deal with and you have to make a decision and you can't allow yourself to be influenced by whatever emotional cues or other things. But the uh, Interesting thing for me was that it was mediated by something called lower salivary cortisol. Cortisol is this enzyme, which is uh, this hormone, which is a stress hormone. So the reason they had better executive function was they had lower salivary cortisol. And it was not lower salivary cortisol at baseline. So it was not like chalte firte, there is less cortisol. It was less cortisol when the person was subjected to some stress. So really what it was doing is it was controlling or kind of reducing the amount of stress that the person would experience in response to some bad situation. Uh, similar evidence uh, from a different kind of technological approach, that one was salivary cortisol, 
Uh, this one was uh, something called an event-related potential study, which is like an EEG uh, study, look at brain waves. So they gave two successive stimuli, like two sounds maybe, and then you had to see how good you were at identifying both sounds. Sometimes they would come very close together, so you had to be able to tell, huh, this, there, is there. one was there, one was there, that sort of thing. So they assess something called event-related potential, which is the EEG brain change that happens when something salient happens. Like so when you're just sitting there and ting sound comes, like you can see like a spike in your EEG, which suggests that your brain has recognized it and is going to act on it. So what they found was that people who did a lot of meditation, this was mostly based on mindfulness meditation, they were better at the identification of the second stimulus. And the mechanism of this improvement was because the amplitude of the response to the first stimulus was less. So similar to that salivary cortisol thing that I was saying, the reason they were better at responding to the second stimulus was because their brain didn't get as perturbed in response to the first stimulus. So again, it controls the fluctuations in your cognitive process. That very complicated figure, but this is kind of the gist of that figure. Okay. So another thing which I think as Indians and especially as Hindus, we um, uh, are often prone to thinking is that they are all similar processes and it arises from perhaps the uh, kind of the uh, the religious homogeneity that we envision and we say that uh, ye practice, wo practice, ye dharm, wo panth, everything is all ultimately leading to the same path. But initial belief for example was that all these meditative ritual practices uh, cause relaxation, that's why people was like uh, you seem very stressed out, aapka blood pressure higher, why don't you meditate or do yoga. But now we actually know that some practices can actually cause activation and they can cause energization. You might think like that, what is the point? Like you're already stressed out, why do you want to go like more, like more stress, more activity, right? So, but then they also found that those practices which caused that, caused a dramatic improvement in cognitive performance. So I think about it like when you have an exam, you don't uh, necessarily do yoga, you drink coffee because you want to stay awake and you want to be very sharp, right? So that's kind of what these guys found. And then this other very fascinating paper from 2014, uh, this was a meta-analysis of various studies uh, of uh, brain imaging. This said linking the neural mechanisms involved in Hinduism and Buddhism related meditations. Now again like you know like the standard approach here is like all these things are really the same process but it's not true like at least based on this study they actually found that there were significant differences and mainly I think the differences come from at least these guys also postulate the same thing. The main reason these differences exist is because the metaphysics of Hinduism and Buddhism are very different. Um, so Buddhist practices of course have been much better studied in the Western literature primarily because I guess they're spread out all over the world and a lot of these like Tibetan Buddhists after the persecution in China they moved to you know like USA so now they're easily available to, um, uh, to scientists to study and usually science is like a very herd activity so once two or three people have studied it everybody else piles on so once that initial barrier is crossed it really gets a lot more attention. It's easy because you then you keep citing, citing, citing and then people take it seriously, right? So initial Buddhist meditation, like early times, like Buddha time, uh, was mostly focused on mindfulness breathing. Uh, these were derived from early yogic and Vedic streams and it's very well documented. Like, uh, But the late stage, which is Tibetan Buddhism, which is called Vajrayana, that is actually the Tantric Buddhism. And that is the stage which is being more studied now because of the Dalai Lama and his uh, other group people. And this is actually very heavily influenced by Hindu Tantra and uh, Shakta tradition. So most of the, you, you look at the Buddhist uh, shrines in Tibet and stuff, they, they really look like Indian shrines because there's a lot of these goddesses, yantra, deities, and the meditative practices are also like this. They say like, uh, think of this goddess, think of this uh, deity, visualize like this, visualize like that. And you feel like, huh, this is something I've seen in my neighborhood uh, practice also. So here's this fascinating thing. So they have uh, done this study on meditative uh, meditators in Tibet. Okay, uh, this is called the Tumo meditation. So they call this the Tumo meditation. So they basically uh, the practice was sold as something you sit in the freezing weather in the snow. You wrap a wet cloth around yourself, and then you do this meditative Tumo practice, and then the cloth dries itself because the water just evaporates because you're so hot. So that's what people used to say. And actually there is evidence for that. So this study from a uh, combined study from Singapore and uh, US. So they studied like three or four practitioners of this and that Y axis is actually body temperature. So they raised their temperature from like 36 to 38. 38 is actually a fever range. So if you came to a hospital with 38 temperature, we will get blood cultures and we will start you on antibiotics. Uh, you, nobody thinks that these things can be consciously manipulated, but these guys proved that it could be done. 
uh, it's fascinating and it has received a lot of attention in uh, scientific circles as well as like general uh, humanity circles and like you know people who are kind of interested in this sort of stuff what is interesting to us is that tummo was actually called chandali kriya it was transmitted from india to tibet so really now everybody is now interested in oh tummo tummo there's like big wikipedia page about it chandali kriya nobody knows there's no nobody even chandali the word itself nobody knows like apparently i searched for it like i was like apparently it's like a name of some mahavidya goddess named matangi but that also like half the time is there half the time is not really like clearly documented so i think this again is like an example of digestion because you think like tibet haan theek hai it's kind of part of uh, the indian cultural sphere but really you nobody in india knows what tumo is and nobody in the rest of the world knows what chandali kriya is so i think it's a sad thing but i think it's like just proof that there are very interesting techniques which merit further investigation um personal anecdote on the efficacy of sadhana because like me just telling you about scientific studies uh, i don't think it will be very interesting because like that guy on facebook said like you know ye bas fmri studies ke bare mein baat kar raha hai i'm not going to do that so i'm going to tell you about my friend dane uh, dane really you can think of him as my first guru almost he was a nurse in my hospital when i was doing residency in alabama so uh, um, in 1986 dane got diagnosed with crohn's disease which is like this immune system disease of your intestine Uh, it causes uh, like kind of holes between your uh, intestines they kind of communicate with each other your feces leak out that sort of thing severe pain lot of alternating diarrhea constipation diarrhea constipation so that was when he got exposed to narcotics like opioids and stuff and then he went into poly substance abuse from 1986 to 2013 uh major depression and he says he was stuck in this loop of negative thinking where he was always ruminating about the past worrying about what is going to happen in the future and this is what he looked like uh, during that period so that smile kind of hides what he says was a lot of pain that he was experiencing and his body you can see shows uh, kind of the telltale signs of a high stress uh, hormonal environment now this is dane now this was like 2 years ago 3 years ago so he's down 40 pounds he's off his blood pressure meds stopped all his drug use he says mood is much better and he actually visited the kumbh mela like last a uh, couple months ago he was here he put up all his face, uh, facebook photos and stuff and then went to banaras and all these places also so dane uh, actually came to me while i was on call in the hospital once this is how all this i got started in interested in this field because he came to me once and said you know uh, can i tell you something like you are not sitting properly and you are not breathing properly and i thought he was crazy like what is the meaning of that like sitting wherever you sit is sitting and wherever you breathe like i'm breathing how can i not be breathing properly i'm alive so but he said so you should sit properly in the sense that you shouldn't have this uh, what they call the sacral tilt like sometimes you sit like this and sometimes you sit like this both of those are wrong he says what you should do is like there's this bone uh, in your buttock which is kind of uh, the tubercle and he says the weight should kind of fall directly on that and then he says you should try to keep your head neck and trunk aligned as much as able and he says you should breathe properly which he says you should use your diaphragm he says mostly people breathe like through here but he says this is uh, usually associated with stress like when you are exercising you breathe with your chest so when you sitting and you're still breathing with your chest that really sends a subconscious message to your brain that you are under stress so what he says you should actually breathe with your belly you should go in and out like that so it is difficult to do at first but then when you start doing it you start noticing that there is something which feels different when you do that like a sort of sensation um and he says like you should always try to create a space and time for practice start like a very small 3 to 5 minute practice every day he actually is comes from this lineage of uh himalayan uh, the himalayan institute uh, i think it was started by swami rama he is passed away now but now there is a pandit rajmani tigunate so he's very like deep into all this like uh, he recently i think when he came for kumbh mela they gave him initiation into this uh, one of the shri vidya bala mantra or something so um so anyway moving on to exploring future possibilities and oh i asked dane permission to show this thing this thing so just in case any of you are wondering he's he's totally fine with me telling a story here so exploring some future possibilities i think that's what mostly interests me because whatever has already been done has already been done i'm more curious like you know what can happen in the next few years i'm only 30 years old so you know hopefully i have a fair amount of time ahead so first is my personal interest okay so i'm in the us now my hope is to uh, india wapas aayenge and hospital yahi banayenge uh, neuro focused hospital uh, uh, which uh, hopefully i will be able to incorporate techniques targeted at strengthening neural networks through these practices and then personally my reading uh, these are three people i particularly want to explore more 
Sri Aurobindo, of course. Uh, there's this person, Kavyakant Ganapati Muni, which I don't think many people know of. He was an associate of Ramana Maharaji, uh, passed away now, of course. Uh, he was very deep into all these much, much more like rational and kind of intellectual parts. Like Ramana Maharishi was more of a, I guess, experiential kind of uh, spiritual guy. Uh, he was his devotee. Kavyakanta was a devotee of Ramana, but he wrote a lot more kind of very intellectual and rational stuff. And then there's this guy Shankar Bharadwaj Kandavalli. So I don't know who this person is. So I only read articles by him, and but some of his insights just seem like really fascinating. So if you guys can track him down, I think you should call him for a talk. Just like stunning, uh, like. I mean, of course, stunning from my perspective, right? As a neurologist, I find it stunning. Uh, but he's not a neurologist. His profile, I think it's, he has a profile on this Hindupedia where he's run, written a bunch of articles. He says he's like interested in natural language processing and mathematical philosophy. So I don't know what that. So, and of course, so if this, these techniques can be used for recovering from diseases like stroke, theoretically, you should also be able to use them for enhancing normal people, which I think is what they were devised for in the first place. I think these practices were all aimed at kind of improving who were already healthy into like something better. So uh, a few weeks ago, this article came out, a haven of mindfulness in a digital maelstrom, Calm is the first $1 billion meditation app. So again, uh, Western founders, Western company, $1 billion based on mindfulness. Uh, there's this other article, history of mindfulness from east to west, from religion to science. Uh, kind of religion to science, huh? same technique, same practice, just stripped out of the few words and now it's science. Um, one thing which supports my endeavor and I think all our endeavors is that this is not something new, this transmission of religion or tradition into scientific practices, not like something which is kind of de novo and it applies only in India. Like, let me give you the story from China. So in the 1960s, Chinese army was like, you know, bogged down by malaria. So Mao Zedong set up this thing called Project 523. He said, you have to find a cure for this. I don't want to lose all my men, like, you know, very expensive. So he sent this lady, like young girl, to, to UU. She was 39 years old. She joined this Project 523. So she said she would like to investigate traditional Chinese medicine, uh, which again is kind of like their version of Ayurveda. Very deep, very interesting practices. So she found this book called uh, Emergency Prescriptions Kept Up One Sleeve by some guy in the 4th century. And then in that it said, a handful of King Hao immersed with two liters of water, wring out the juice and drink it all. This was a treatment for like persistent fever or something like that. So from this King Hao, which is this herb, uh, to you, you isolated this thing called artemisinin. Artemisinin is a drug that she came up with. And now artemisinin is the first line therapy for malaria. It's like so good that you know you don't want to give it really uh, unless they, you're in a very highly resistant area because you're afraid that the bug will develop resistance to it because it's such an effective drug. And uh, for these efforts, she was awarded the Nobel Prize a few years ago. So clearly showing that she had the willpower and the intellect to actually sift through all this stuff. I'm not saying everything in that book was good, like, but there was something there which actually did work. I think that's kind of a template for how we should be approaching these uh, kind of uh, our own endeavors. And the other important thing, quite apart from the material benefits of uh, recovery from stroke or improving normal people or creating an app or something, I think for me, or from a kind of intellectual kind of Bathsheet kind of standpoint, is whether this will help in standard people's understanding of Indian thought, whether it will help in reinterpreting that. Like I know philosophically there are many different interpretations, but standard people I think still have a very uh, concrete understanding of what uh, whatever a deity is or something. So for example, I read this, uh, at least I read a summary of this book by the great Subhash Kak uh, called The Gods Within. It was written several decades ago. It says mind consciousness in the Vedic tradition where he basically kind of made the point that maybe all these deities are essentially representations of cognitive processes rather than actual objects or something out there. So for example, like, you know, we think of Saraswati. Is Saraswati like somebody who's there kind of flying in the sky whom you pray to and she'll kind of bless you? Or is Saraswati like a metaphor for the neural mechanisms which uh, make learning possible, make memory possible? We know like there are many specific networks which improve learning and memory uh, distributed throughout the brain. Could it be that Saraswati is essentially the subjective perception of these structures going about their processing? Which would mean that if you do Saraswati sadhana, maybe you're somehow activating or improving connections in these structures. And there are some hints, which I think suggests that this interpretation probably might be true. Okay, So 
One is that like a lot of times you see this kind of statement that the deity is the mantra. Like the deity has a mantra and they said the mantra is the deity. And then uh, this Shankar Bhardwaj Khandavali whom I had mentioned earlier, he actually wrote this very interesting kind of description on uh, one of his uh, articles. So he says the mantra syllables will determine whether the deity is fair, fierce or benign. So you know, like especially in the Shakta deities, like some of them are like Ugra, some of them are like very kind of like uh, very pleasant, right? So I just took out this little uh, paragraph from his work. The qualities of a Devta can be seen from the Bijas of the Devta. Each Matrika Bijas quality can be seen in the attributes of Dhyana Sloka. For instance, Bhuvaneshwari was like one of the Shakti uh, uh, forms is one of the most pleasant forms. This is because Bhuvaneshwari Bija has Maya Bija, which apparently is cream, and Maya Bija corresponds to Anandmay Kosh. So he says she is bound to be a personification of bliss because her Bija has Maya Bija. So it's a very interesting kind of a reverse engineering of what the deity is. Like I think a standard understanding would be that there is a deity and then you create a mantra about it or something as a worship or something. But here he's saying that the mantra is creates the deity. And here uh, maybe I should increase the volume here a little bit. I'm not sure it's playing, but like, uh, so basically there is evidence that sound can trigger emotion. You guys heard that? So I can play it again with higher volume if possible. That was one. Kind of an upbeat sound, right? Relatively upbeat. Kind of like kind of a low kind of morose kind of sound and this is very well known in like the western musical tradition like these are chords so with people build songs based around a certain chord or series of chords whether when they want to convey a happy emotion or a sad emotion uh, similarly that we showed that sounds can convey emotion this is a very interesting experiment actually uh, popularized by one of our own great uh, neurologist vs ramachandran he is basically these two shapes, if I told you that one of them is called Kiki and one of them is called Bobo and you had to assign which one is where? Exactly and this is holds true even if you give it to some tribes people in Africa who have never been exposed to English or any Indo-European language, you do it in China, everybody comes up with the same assignment of Kiki and Bobo. So previous slide sound is able to trigger emotion, here the sound is able to trigger a shape so all I gave you was the sound and you, your brain somehow assigned that this is the shape that should go with it and this is the shape that should go with the other one. So I think very good circumstantial evidence for what the mantra really is doing. And the other kind of neurological concept that really ties in to this kind of understanding is this of synesthesia. Synesthesia is something that is kind of coming under interest again in the neurology field. It is basically a phenomenon where certain people have this weird sensation when like two senses kind of blend together. So you see all these things like alphabets are associated with colors, numbers sometimes are associated with colors, sometimes they are located with uh, associated with positions like sometimes you see three and it's always like here like in your mind. So it's a very strange phenomenon. We don't know why it happens. Maybe it has something to do with like sometimes the, this color and this alphabet's fibers are traveling together or there's some leakage of signals from one to the other. We don't know why it happens but I think this is a phenomenon that is being very well documented and there is actually some uh, interesting research going on including at my own hospital. And I think from a tantric perspective what is fascinating is this book that I actually found uh, in this kind of bookstore in Chennai. There is this place called Giri Traders where they sell a lot of these you know, old, old school kind of books. This is just like an old dusty book that I found maybe last year it's called uh, Dhyan Anubhuti like experiences in Dhyan. Uh, by uh, Sri Vidya Kulagaraja uh, Swami Nadananda Tirtha. He's like a Nambudri from Kerala who's now settled, I think, in like Himachal or something. So it's basically 250 pages of things like this abstract paintings that he came up with when he meditated upon that mantra. Om Hrimkara Mrgavahanyayai Namaha. And then he, I guess, his, this visualization flashed in front of his head. And there's something else for some, something else. It's a, nothing else. Like there's no more text or anything. The whole book is only like paintings of what visions came to him when he meditated. I think what's fascinating is just like interesting how this kind of thing has received no attention at all. It was just lying in some dusty corner and nobody really like thought it was worth digging further. But I'm gratified to note that in the humanities literature, 
there is some uh, evidence of interest, especially in the West. Uh, I read this article by uh, this uh, very talented writer, uh, resounding field of visualized self-awareness, the generation of synesthetic consciousness in the Sri Yantra rituals of Nitya Shodashikarnava Tantra. And uh, another one who's, uh, this person actually I work with, Kerry Martinskora, uh, day in the life of an aesthetic tantrika from synesthetic garden to lucid dreaming and spaciousness. So really, those guys are starting to take some interest in the neuroscience literature. And I think it's hopefully the start of something which unravels this uh, kind of uh, mystery. Here again, uh, for our you know personal intellectual curiosity, is like a table of these various bij mantras, right? So the one thing that stands out when you read of uh, read all these bij mantras, Om Shreem Hreem Kreem. So the profusion of certain syllables like M, R, E, U, U, but not too much like how come there's no bij mantra like or something like that like you know a certain sounds and certain sound patterns which seem to predominate and some which seem to be like totally ignored and again same thing with like these gayatris like you read some of these uh, sadhana books like so all these like it's not like it's just one gayatri mantra there is like some gayatri for each deity like this for narasimha gayatri apparently om narasimha vidmahe vajra nakaya dhimahi tanno narasimha prachodaya then there's like a i think this is the durga gayatri uh, this is a, uh, it's a Agni Gayatri. So, all of these you see, there are some similarities. They're like three lines. They have certain words which are stable and certain words which are changing. So, you visualize this in this manner like red lines are stable, the blue things are kind of unique to this one. Red line stable, blue things unique to this one. Red line stable, triangles unique to this one. So, this really seems to be some sort of structure in which few things are kept constant and some few things are being fiddled around with. Uh, and to me as a biologist and a neuroscientist, I think this brings to mind a lot of things which I find in my day-to-day -day work is like, these are some neurotransmitters. So the body and evolution in general is very uh, conservative because it doesn't have resources to expend upon developing new, new structures for everything. So once you find something that works, usually it just makes small adjustments and usually that will suffice to provide different effects. So basically, like you see here, these three molecules, they have different effects in the brain, but they all have a very similar structure. Like you, almost the left side of all of them is pretty much the same. It's only that right corner, which seems to be, uh, you know, fluctuating. Same thing you can see in like these two proteins, like hemoglobin and chlorophyll, very similar structures, just a few kind of ions changed around here and there, like iron is there in hemoglobin, magnesium is there in chlorophyll, and they do different uh, processes, but similar processes, like they bind oxygen and do things like that. So I think based on this circumstantial evidence, like these hints, we should be able to kind of formulate a hypothesis. And this is of course the scientific method, right? Like you make some observations, you see that there are some weird patterns and you start uh, making some theories about those patterns. Then you make a prediction, then you see if there's an evidence and then you test and then you see again. So I think what my hypothesis would be that maybe all these mantras, mudras, etc., are some form of inward communication. Uh, usually communication you think is like coming from inside and you're communicating with somebody outside. But these practices were supposed to be done in private. So obviously, there's nobody looking at you. So I think they were primarily meant to communicate from the conscious uh, level to unconscious structures within the nervous system. And these conserved structures perform the uh, basics of the delivery process. And uh, the modifications are for specific targeting to maybe for each devta, that's like a specific target. And uh, my last part of the talk is that these are interesting, but at the same time, none of this is going to be effective without this uh, phenomenon which apparently is called Supatrata. This is my, actually my guru only told me, uh, who teaches me the Durga Saptashati Sadhana that I do. He said, uh, Supatrata is basically the ability to receive something. And unless you have that, uh, it will not really make any impact upon you, which to me initially sounded like kind of strange. Uh, I read about this uh, guy, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. His name is Yuji uh, Krishnamurti. He was a contemporary of Jiddu Krishnamurti, like famous philosophers, both of Indian origin. So apparently he went to Ramana Maharishi and said, uh, so this thing called uh, enlightenment or moksha, can you give it to me? So Ramana Maharishi said like, I can give it to you, but can you take it? So, and this guy apparently got like very upset, like how he could say something like that. But then when you think about it, like it seems like there's a lot of truth hidden in that, right? Like, I think the most uh, simple example for people like us is this cup of coffee. Like, you know, a lot of us are addicted to it. I myself, I might go there, spend a lot of money on these Starbucks and all these things. But you give the same coffee to a baby or a child, he'll spit it out. Uh, 
but you give it to an adult who's for fond of this they really like seek out various specific flavors even if there's no sugar or anything they kind of appreciate all these subtle notes which the baby just did not appreciate he just spit it out so clearly the coffee has not changed what has changed is the cognitive structure which has been processing and receiving the signals from the coffee so i basically would like to leave you with uh, something which illustrates this principle of supatrata so this is a kind of this wall hanging sort of thing small like 10 into 10 inch which is hanging in my house in the puja room in in chennai my cousins had got it when they went to the shirdi sai baba temple 3 uh, 4 years ago when i got it like i didn't really know what to make of it it was just like one of the various things but from my perspective now like after like learning all this other stuff about tantra and neuroscience i feel like this is a very condensed representation of some really tremendous insights about the nervous system uh like with each civilization you can say you know the united states is known for putting a man on the moon or china is known for the great wall i think this is really the crowning glory of uh, our people and i think it's a uh, uh, high time that we dug into it in a very scientific manner and try to really understand all the stuff that they were trying to tell us uh, thank you and that's my email address if you guys want to contact me thank you.